Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Camleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. In today's episode, we are returning to Glencoe, if only in spirit. We're chatting with Adam Raja, who recommended the two larics hike I told you about last week. If you haven't listened to last week's story yet, consider pausing this episode and doing so first. It really sets the scene for my conversation with Adam, our shared passion for Glencoe, and all the topics we touch upon today. Adam is a photographer, climber, mountaineer and climate activist from Glasgow. His love for the Scottish mountains is undeniably a big part of his personal and professional life. But that wasn't always like that. Unfortunately, Adam wasn't able to join me for my hike in Glencoe, but he joined me for a chat in my garden a few days later, and I'm very excited for you to hear his story, his experiences with the outdoor community, his views on mountaineering in Scotland, and his work as a climate activist. Let's hear it from Adam Raja. Adam, do you want to start us off by introducing yourself with your name, your pronouns and what you do? Yeah, my name is Adam Raja um, and my pronouns are he, him. I am, what do I do? God, um, I'm a photographer, I guess a climate activist. I always feel funny like putting myself in boxes because people are so fluid, but I'm also climber slash mountaineer and I'm the market manager for Protect Our Winters UK. Brilliant. And kind of let's start with the photography side of things was that something you were always interested in or how did how did you grow into that yeah photography came from it kind of went hand in hand when I first discovered the outdoors and when I first started getting outdoors 
because I was putting myself in these beautiful places. It was such a contrast to where I'd grew up, for example, and just the day-to-day life I had had. So as soon as I was there, I was like, oh, man, I want to capture these moments and bought, bought a camera. And then, yeah, just progress from there. Like, as I developed skills and got experience in the outdoors, like my photography sort of developed with that as well. And it's funny when I think about it, because similarly with, like, climbing and mountaineering, and photography was one of these things that I'd seen people doing and I'd always wanted to do, but there was always this wee voice in my head being like, you can't do that or that's <laughs> not for you. So it's interesting that I picked both of those things up. But, yeah, it's just been natural progression, just wanting to capture these special moments. The little voice in your head, that's really interesting. Why do you think it said, that's not for you? Where do you think that came from? Oh, deep question. <laughs> I like to start with those. Yeah, I think I think it's a combination of things, to be honest. I think, you know, I've always been someone that wasn't particularly confident and always had a lot of self-doubt. So that certainly played a big role. And I think, to go even further back and deeper, I think that came from a lot of childhood experiences. So I grew up in a, a mixed ethnicity family and an area that was predominantly white. So I had quite a lot of racist experiences and difficult situations or experiences based upon that. So I always had this sort of, I don't know, just self-doubt and inadequacy. And then as well as that, like, these are things that require a lot of privilege. And whilst I didn't grow up super an extreme deprivation I had I grew up in a single parent home and had those the pressures that come with that so when you're young my mum couldn't put like a DSLR camera in my hands mm. um, necessarily and it wasn't something we learned at school and you know my mum worked really hard to put food on the table and she was able to say like I used to like, like like baseball for example and she would come out of the park and throw a baseball with me for an hour or whatever after work some nights but it's much harder to take you out to the Highlands, for example, and have that time. So I think it came from that. And I think some of it's just genetic. Like, <laughs> my like my mum's very similar. I think, I think naturally I get quite... Or I, I don't like... I'm hesitant to push myself out of my comfort zone, or I previously was. I think that's... I think we're all a wee bit like that to an extent. It's natural to find yourself in a comfortable position and be scared to expose yourself. So, yeah, I think it's sort of just a culmination of all those things and probably lots of other things that I'm not aware of at the moment. <laughs> um, I like what you say about comfort zone and how hard it is to put yourself out that. And it immediately made me think about climbing because yeah. it's something that is so out of most people's comfort zones. And I think even a lot of the climbers I've met over the time and, and you know, the people who you see films about, it's probably still out of their comfort zone, but they're just used to that pushing that and being out of that how does climbing and I guess mountaineering to an extent as well does that feel like that to you now that you're consciously making the effort to push yourself yeah definitely so like I was going to say with climbing but with anything I don't do anything that I do at an elite level mm. <laughs> but how, how do you want to define elite but yeah so if I've not even I'm not naturally, I don't naturally like heights, for example. So if I've not been climbing for a few weeks, even if I've not been to the climbing gym for a few weeks, when you're on that route and you're at the top, you get those sort of butterflies and you're like, oh. And I guess the more that you put yourself in situations that you're uncomfortable and push yourself and you realise, okay, I can do this or get more comfortable. And definitely there's that natural progression I think you get from experience as well because, so for example, one of my goals in the outdoors, like there was a, there's a route called... 
it's a gold curved dredge and it's like a grade three scrambling route and i actually had a bit of a disaster on that because i ended up on it accidentally when i was wanting to go a walk one day <laughs> i wanted well, one of my goals was to be able to do that route but now like say five years since that goal like that route has become the approach route to where i go climbing for example mm -hmm. so you do curve dredge to get to rannoch wall which is multi-pitch climbing so i think yeah exposing yourself to these sort of or exposing yourself to situations that push you out of your comfort zone and then coming out of them safely or happily and realizing okay you can you know you broaden your own i'll be a bit cliche but you do broaden your horizons and realize what you're capable of and the scottish highlands are a perfect place for that aren't they yeah definitely i mean it's such a bit like for so many disciplines and interests it's just a massive playground really like for as a photographer there's so many i've lived here all my life and there's so many places in the highlands that i still want to go and photograph there's so many routes i want to climb there's so many places i want to walk woodlands i want to see um yeah it's really as a haven i think taking a few steps back you know you you said you didn't grow up with i was gonna say you didn't grow up with outer access that's obviously not true you didn't grow up with that element of being in the outdoors as in going to the mountains and going for hikes and, and doing many outdoor activities as a child or that was just not something you did what was that journey like to now being a climber and a mountaineer and and really making that a big part of not just your life but also your professional life yeah i mean it's a it was a quite a slow journey i guess it's taken 10 years or so to get to a place where i would even be call myself a climber and even then you've still got that sort of doubt when I'm saying that I don't necessarily f I always joke when I'm speaking to people about like the climbing gym I go to I'm like I'm never I'm not one of the cool kids I'm not like I'm, I've always been or felt somewhat of an outsider and maybe that's because it has been a smaller part of my life but yeah it wasn't until I was I think 20 something early 20s and I was in university that I actually one was really aware of the outdoors as I know it now in Scotland, like knew about the highlands, knew about places, specifically mountains in the highlands and had places that I wanted to see. And then on top of that, could see them because I think there is a lot of barriers that you have to overcome to be able and a lot of privilege actually that you need to have to be able to go and explore the outdoors and mountains for, for leisure. So it was like once I had a car, once I had, like when I went to university, for example, sort of the broadened horizons that came with that and the aspirations that came with university. Uh, and then the job opportunities and the works. So I worked at the university when I was studying as well and just the disposable income to be mm. able to explore. So it sort of took all those things. And yeah, I, I, I already said it as a sort of cliche, but like university really did broaden my horizons and just my outlooks I was open to experiences like that and looking for new experiences and other things to fill my weekends with and then yeah really gradual so getting outdoors myself that was one of the biggest challenges like I think breaking into the community because mm. I didn't know anybody so when I first started getting outdoors I was just going myself doing walks going seeing scenic places I wanted to photograph and it wasn't until think lockdown was it the first lockdown I think when the first lockdown kicked off I started kind of engaging on Instagram and connecting with other photographers other outdoorsy people um, and sort of craving that yeah community and friends because I think 
I think when it had been completely removed and you just had very little interaction, I realised that I actually did value that and did want that. Mm. And that's how I started sort of networking and breaking into the to the outdoors community, I guess. But yeah, just very gradual process, doing more difficult walks, for example, then going scrambling and then scrambling became climbing and then climbing became winter climbing and just baby steps. But those mm. baby steps end up being leaps over a period of time. And yeah, like I said, I'm not elite at anything I do, especially not climbing, but I climb not necessarily to do something difficult, although there is that sense of achievement. It's nice when you push your grade or whatever. But I climb in mountaineering because I like that sort of, I think the freedom that it gives you to explore this place, that untethered, um, it's like a license. If I can climb that wall, I can get to the best viewpoint of that location rather than, you know, to say I climbed this specific grade. So, yeah, that was a long winding ramble there, apologies. No, that's that's really interesting. And I think one thing that I'd love to pick up on is you mentioned the online community as the place where you found the outdoor community or an into the outdoor community, maybe rather than in-person communities. For me, it was, in Scotland anyways, it was the Mountaineering Club at Glasgow Uni that brought me to the Highlands and I joined them when I moved here for university and for me that kind of in-person, having someone to take me into mountains that I didn't know anything about and where you know I didn't feel confident or safe in being on my own that was a really important element and I think that is still with me. So I'm wondering how you feel about that online community and whether that is still a big part of the experience, the outdoor experience for you today as well. Yeah, it played a massive role. Like, and I, I think my initial actual introduction to like the Scottish mountains full stop was from social media. And I think there's a lot to be said about social media, a lot of the negatives, but that was a real positive for me was that literally seeing places in Scotland so the Buckle for example which is a mountain you probably saw recently one of the most iconic mountains in Scotland and one of my favourites to this day just because it was one of the first I encountered but I remember seeing that on Instagram and just being like wow I need to see that in person and couldn't actually believe like when I first saw it I thought it was like Iceland or something <laughs> I was yeah. like where is this and then that inspired me to go see it in person for myself but then, yeah, the other benefit was that community because, how should I phrase that? I had somewhat of a troubled past, let's say. Um, you know, as a teenager, growing up in Glasgow, there was a lot of negative influences and unfortunately I got involved in some of those negative influences. And, you know, so let's say the gang culture, for example, and that became my community. But when I had the opportunity to go to university and turn my life around, I had to remove myself from that part of my life because it was negative but at the same time it was all I knew as as a community and as friends and then there was always that void because I'd essentially cut off my whole network of friends mm. or the majority of them so for years it was literally I don't know maybe the first three four years it wasn't until Covid I actually had other friends that were outdoors so not knowing anyone that was also getting outdoors not really having, I guess. I guess that comes from some of the things I touched upon earlier, but maybe that confidence to just go and join a club myself to meet people and not really sure where to start. You know, Instagram and social media was a great way for me to connect with other people. And that was like annoying people. I was in people's DMs being like, hey, are you going to hike? Can I come hike with you and stuff like that? Most people are like, who's this? Who's this weird? <laughs> <laughs> but 
it was a hugely powerful tool for connecting me to people. So I really value it, and I think it is a really valuable tool uh, if it's managed correctly and you don't spend your whole day on it. I spend, as of late, I've spent far too many hours on TikTok scrolling that algorithm. <laughs> you do work in marketing. So. True, true. <laughs> it's a necessary evil sometimes. So there are pros and cons, but I do value it, and it's played a really important part in me getting to where I'm today. And then as well as that, just the ability to share experiences and get inspiration from other people and as a photographer to share a platform to share your work where people will actually see it you know or used to see it before it was video based (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah yeah i've yeah i do value um social media but i think it is something we have to kind of manage and um find balance with in our lives oh absolutely i think Particularly during the lockdown, but even the years before, I've noticed an increase in online communities that gather around the outdoors and and the interest in the outdoors, but then meet in real life. I've met many of my closest hiking friends through social media, Facebook groups mostly, but also Instagram and actually met Fran, who works with me on this podcast, not through social media, but through another podcast that we both submitted a voice note to. So again, we didn't know each other. We only met each other for the first time in August, even though we've been working on this podcast for almost two years together. So there's something to be said about online communities. And then, you know, I didn't know anyone else who worked in podcasting. You know, it's a different situation. And I've had a very different upbringing to you. And particularly the, the mountains played a big role in my upbringing and for my parents as well. But I do think there is something that probably a lot of people can relate to is that being able to join communities online is a little bit less scary maybe and a bit easier to an extent than trying to insert yourself into an existing group. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually I was just thinking when you were saying that there, one area or one thing that's hugely benefited from it has been the diversity and inclusion movement in these mm. communities, sort of connecting these people from all over the country or um so whether you know it's like the wanderlust women for example yeah. and them getting out in the lakes and all the adventures they're getting on i think it can be really empowering for people especially like if you're geographically placed all over the place but you've got shared values or mm. i guess shared barriers that you mm. can overcome together um so yeah it is interesting and it's, it's been nice to see and and similarly i was just thinking there as well Last year when I went to Kendall, I think we were speaking about it earlier, but I went to Kendall and that was the first time I'd been to Kendall Mountain Festival. But it was like meeting my Instagram friends list in person, which was it was really a really nice opportunity to meet them in person, but I wouldn't have, that would have been a room full of strangers without mm. social media. So, yeah, it's quite cool. Quite cool. Nice. Something that probably a lot of people find maybe quite surprising is that, you know, you're from Scotland, you grew up here, the Scottish Highlands are so close and yet you grew up without that and I think for a lot of people is often surprising my partner is similar he grew up in Scotland but he doesn't know anything about Scotland he's he's not been to many places whereas people sometimes assume oh because it's so close you know of course you would experience that can you talk a little bit about that kind of that almost sometimes you almost know the places far away better than the places that are close to home did you does that resonate with you do you feel like that's the case yeah, I guess 
I knew about mountains, for example. I probably knew more about like Everest than I ever did about the Buckle, which is which is crazy, or, or Ben Nevis. And I guess one part of that is based upon like the media I was consuming and what you're seeing in TV growing up. But I think for me, it was just the, the community and where I was growing up. It just wasn't something people did, and it wasn't necessarily that. I was going to say that they didn't value it, but I don't think they even had the opportunity to get to a point where they were they valued it or hadn't experienced it enough to have that sort of feeling towards it. So for me, it was like my mum, for example, who's never or hadn't when we were growing up now. We've been out hill walking and hiking with her, but she'd never went hill walking and she'd never went hiking. Um, I don't think... She'd never actually went to Glencoe. She's still not been to the Isle of Skye, mm-hmm. which is another one of my favourite places in Scotland. Hopefully I can get her there uh, this year or next year. But I think without that exposure or that sort of experience to have a value for these places, and you do kind of look... One On one hand, you can just overlook what's on your doorstep and we can take these things for granted. But as well as that, we touched upon the barriers, like... If you don't know anything about hill walking, mountaineering, climbing, where do you begin? What is the first step that you take? And using my mum again for that example, she is quite a shy person inherently like like myself. So she wouldn't necessarily go to a club on her own when none of her friends are interested to go with her. So, yeah, again, I think there's lots of reasons for it. But unfortunately in Glasgow, I think a big part of it is the deprivation in the city and the disparity in the city because it does come with a huge like you do require a certain level of privilege to be able to go outside and explore whether that's the kit that you need to buy the skill set that you require the car because the highlands Mm. aren't great for getting around with public transport necessarily at the moment unfortunately so there's all these sort of different factors that can result in a bit of a complex issue but yeah, for me, I think it was, and for me, I think it was a combination. Yeah, maybe if my mum had sort of had that introduction, it was something she would maybe have, 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 have done with us. But again, with my dad being an immigrant, it wasn't something that he was. He was mm-hmm. he came here to work and that was his life. He worked. Yeah, he didn't really, I don't think he did anything but drink alcohol for leisure, <laughs> unfortunately. So, yeah. I can only really talk about my own experiences and then what you've seen, but I think, again, like with most things, it is a sort of complex issue. And just because you're aware of something doesn't mean you can necessarily go and do it or achieve it either, unfortunately, or know how to. Absolutely, absolutely. There's obviously so many reasons why someone wouldn't be able to access the outdoors, Mm. even today. And, you know, there's always people who don't want to see it, but it's just undeniable. Yeah, and that's it. Another thing is... It's not for everyone and it doesn't have to be. Like, the thing yeah. I feel so strong, because I, I like, love to advocate for it because it it sounds really cheesy, but it's been transformative to me. That doesn't mean it's going to be transformative for everybody mm-hmm. and that's fine because they can find something else that does transform their life or that they gravitate towards um, in the same way. But I think it's so important that people at least have the opportunity to experience mm-hmm. a thing and then if they've experienced it, it's not for them cool but they've had that experience and I think that's what matters but if you're never aware of something I think it's it's just a bit of a shame that people can be robbed of experiences because of the social situation they've been born into for example. Absolutely. You've mentioned Glencoe and how transformative 
it was for you to see the buckle. And everyone who has listened to last week's story, which is called Where It All Began, knows that I had a very important ex first experience of Glencoe as well. And I would just love to hear what Glencoe means to you and, and maybe describe that first experience of driving to Glencoe. What was that like for you and why does that still mean so much to you? Yeah, I've got I've got a really emotional connection, I think, with Glencoe. And honestly, any time there and you take that drive, you know, the A82, like, I get butterflies when there's a view, when you can see what's around you, but I get butterflies when you can take in that view because it's... I think it's not only one of the most beautiful places in Scotland, I think it's probably one of the most beautiful places in the world. And for me, it meant so much because it's such a juxtaposition to the Scotland that I knew. Like my weekends growing up were spent surrounded by concrete in Glasgow city centre on the outskirts of Glasgow. So, first of all, I think the proximity was mind blown. The fact that, what, an hour and 45 minutes, two hours from the city, you can be in this landscape that I used to think was in like Iceland. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. So, th so the first time I actually did go there, it was it wasn't until so yeah, I was at university. But then when I got a car, one of the first journeys or trips I took when I had my car was to Glencoe because I'd seen it and I, I was itching to see it in person because it was Instagram that I'd seen it. And then just driving there as I get closer to the Highlands, like the mountains are getting grander. I think it's is it Tindrum you pass first, so you're at Tindrum and you've got the big conic cone-shaped mountains there and I was like wow and I was like swerving all over the A2 <laughs> think I was eating a sandwich and spilling my coffee everywhere trying to stay on the road just looking at these these mountains and it was I think it was maybe spring end of winter so they had like the snow-capped peaks it was just it was amazing and then as you as you progress along the A2 you come to the Glencoe Valley and there's a point on that road where the buckle was just right in front of the road and it's a proper pyramid shaped mountain like black rock at the bottom and snow peaked at the top and it was it was honestly mind-blowing i think as i got to it, i ended up pulling in in a lay-by and just stared at it had had my lunch picked up my lunch that i dropped on <laughs> or went on the floor it fell out my mouth and just stared at it in awe and at, at that point i was like I think it felt like a conspiracy. I was like, <laughs> how did I not... How is this here? I was like, is this a, is this a simulation? <laughs> Why didn't I know about this when I was growing up? And the first thought in my head was like, I need to climb that. Like, I want to climb that. I didn't know what it took, but I wanted to do it. So after staring at it a wee while and taking photos, like, looked up, like, a walking route for it and went home and bought some walking boots and started my misadventures but that wasn't the first hike you did i hope it was, i don't think we would be sitting here probably <laughs> it was it was certainly one of i maybe did wow. some small stuff but that was the thing so i wanted i looked at the walk highlands route and obviously that's like a, a walking route for summer conditions but i got my boots and stuff came back maybe a week later so it's still late winter i think it was maybe march which in the highlands is kind of peak winter mm. season for late winter climbing and I bought like the cheapest pair of winter boots I could find. I had on a pair of like Adidas trackies and like a cheap waterproof jacket. Look, took one look at the route. That was that. Put my phone away and followed a path that I could see. So I wasn't actually on the walkers route. I ended up being on the path to Curved Ridge. Mm -hmm. And I got 
I was maybe like half an hour to an hour in and I remember seeing these a couple of guys up ahead and they're wearing like they're wearing helmets, they've got big backpacks, they've got ice axes. <laughs> and I was just looking at these guys being like, these guys are a bit overdressed, aren't they? And I could see them looking at me, thinking the opposite. But I was quite I don't know if I was embarrassed at the time or what, but I just kept slowing down to let them stay ahead because I was like, I don't don't want the judgment or didn't want the conversation. And then kept progressing and it started snowing so like proper blizzard can't really see the trail that i'm on anymore and at this point you're scrambling you're on almost i mean i think that's a what's it i think it's a moderate climb curve judges graded as so it's like a really really low grade climb and it's a grade two or three winter climb and i don't have crampons i don't have an ice axe so i get to a point where i see these guys the route's almost vertical and they're like roping up and they're putting their crampons on and I was like, I have made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just kind of waited and watched them for a while and I eventually realised, nope, this isn't happening. I need to, I've made a mistake, I need to get back. But it was like white out, can't see anything. My feet print, uh, my footprints that were behind me are basically disappearing. So I'm trying to follow them just for letting gravity take me downhill a little bit and then I ended up the clouds and the snow kind of broke a little bit and I realised I was stood at the top of a quite a small water slide but over 10 metres and I was like oh no and I tried to step back off it but slipped and fell <gasps> slid down this water slide maybe 10 metres maybe more and just lay at the bottom for a minute not sure what had happened I like hurt my ankle and stuff got up and checked and fortunately my ankle and stuff wasn't broken I wasn't seriously injured but that was a real wake up call um, and I, I sort of realised well for, first of all I had to do more research first of all I had to just <laughs> go I had to get off the hill in the first place so the snow fortunately kind of disappeared and I kind of stumbled back to the car with my tail tucked firmly in between my legs <laughs> But when I got to the car, I was like Googling straight away. I was like, winter hiking in Glencoe. And then I realized, like, read the bit about you needing uh, ice axe and mm. um, crampons and learning how to use them. And then I found courses from Mountaineer in Scotland, which mm. are kind of subsidized, subsidized courses that you can learn the difference between winter walking and winter climbing and scrambling and these sort of things and learn how to keep yourself in these situations. But that was the that was the thing. Fortunately, I used that as a real learning moment. Unfortunately, I wasn't seriously hurt. But at the same time, without that sort of prior knowledge and experience and someone to chat to about the difference between winter climbing and, or winter walking even and summer walking, there's a huge difference because the lines are actually blurred between winter walking, say, and mountaineering. Mm. So, yeah, I was, I was, I was very fortunate and... At least I can tell that story with that with a smile on my face. I'm surprised you're still hiking. <laughs> I think I think it took a wee it took a wee while in the car for me to defrost mm -hmm. and <laughs> to heal and then realize yeah and get the confidence to go back out. But doing a course with Mountaineer in Scotland, so sorry I booked on to a winter a winter what did you call it winter walking winter, winter skills, skills course winter skills course and like that gave me a lot of confidence to to get back out. And I think I probably ordered a pair of crampons and ice axe before I even got back to <laughs> back to my flat in Glasgow. Um, but uh, yeah, a real a real learning experience. 
This sounds like it. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're laughing because I think it's funny. My first and only ever experience on the actual buckle is a winter experience as well. And it has put me off winter climbing a little bit. I wasn't on my own. We did have ice axes and crampons. And we're actually now going to hear a little clip from my hike to Glencoe, where I followed a route where you recommend it to me, where I reflect on that experience of winter mountaineering on the buckle. I can see a path coming down the side of Bacaletif Moor, that big mountain you see at the entrance of Glencoe. And it's funny because I don't really remember it, but I know I've walked down that path and then followed this glen, this pass trail that I'm on right now, down towards Glencoe. It's about nine years ago and it was in the winter time, so there was a lot of snow. It was a very rainy day, and it was getting dark by the time we got down. We tried to get to the top of Bocchiletti Moor with crampons and ice axes. It's my first time trying that. I was very overwhelmed by it all. But we didn't quite make it because the weather was just awful, and it was just so wet, and you couldn't see a thing. Um, so we decided to continue along the ridge a little bit and then follow a path down. And I can see that path and it looks steep. And I really don't recall walking down it, but we must have. What I do remember is sitting in the rain on the car park at the bottom trying to catch a lift, <laughs> trying to hitch a lift, uh, hitchhiking back towards Glencoe village where we were staying in the hall. And some poor soul did stop and pick us up. I think there was three of us, maybe four, and we were damp <laughs> and probably quite miserable. And luckily someone stopped and took us with them in their car, they had space for all of us and gave us a lift a few miles up the road and it was definitely dark at that point. That was quite the adventure. I've not done anything quite like that since. I think it's probably put me off winter mountaineering if I'm really honest. Well, maybe I just need to try it again, maybe on a sunny day. I have been up mountains with snow since then hiked up um, Benim which was actually my first Monroe and there was still snow at the top but that was in the springtime it was a sunny day it really didn't bother us very much we didn't need crampons or anything the, soft, the snow was soft enough you didn't slip on it it wasn't really deep so you could easily walk around most of it at that point of the year so it was fine but yeah that was my first winter mountaineering experience and it just came back to me there needless to say i've enjoyed today a lot more <laughs> and i'm actually getting to see this glen and this trail over this pass and take lots of pictures and that will make remembering a lot easier in the future.
Hello, Wild for Scotland listeners. I'm interrupting my own episode here to let you know about our Patreon. This is and always has been an independent show, and as such, I carry all the costs for producing it myself. I pay Fran for making the podcast sound good, invest in the necessary equipment to take on the road, and spend tons of time writing and recording my stories and interviews. If you enjoy the show and you can afford to support our efforts with a monthly contribution, you can do so by signing up to our Patreon. Support options start with as little as £3 per month, but we're also getting back on track with bonus episodes for you, so it's really worth going for the £6 tier to get more stories and interviews from my travels around Scotland. This month, Patreons get to listen to additional recordings and unused footage from my hike in Glencoe, very much like the story about my winter climb up Buckle Moor. Head to wildforscotland.com support to find out how it works and sign up as a patron. That's wildforscotland.com support. Thank you so much. So the route that you suggested to me, the two larics, a trail of two passes between Glencoe and Glenetiv, why did you recommend that? I think it's just that route in particular, like Glen Etive, again, a place that's equally as beautiful, I think, is Glencoe. So a walk that takes you through both of them is, is pretty special. But I think there's something, it's one thing seeing Glencoe from above, and that's cool. But there's also something to be said about seeing it from below and passing in between the mountains and having that walk around and looking up at the peaks. And then some, yeah, other reasons, like, I think, so the, I don't know if you saw any, did you see the deer? Yes, I did see deer. So there's deer everywhere. And that was something else. I wasn't aware of the mountains in Scotland, but I'd never seen things like the red deer and the red squirrel. So the first time I think I actually did that route, there was deer everywhere and they're like the stags with their um oh god what are they called antlers is it antlers <laughs> they're antlers they're just so impressive and i went um during rutting season so you could wow. hear them which was really really cool and, re- and really special but as well as that like some days not only do i not necessarily want to go climbing or go or go scrambling sometimes the weather means that you can't so being able to have a relatively flat or at least trail to walk on rather than a knife edge. It's, it's great to have that option. But yeah, I think it's just such a beautiful spot and just there's so many different things that make that. The views, the wildlife, the length. It's quite a long walk though, isn't it? It's about nine miles. So it, it did take me, you know, with being a person who stops for photos every five steps, uh, it took me a good six hours, was just under six hours to get back to the car park. And that included, you know, crossing rivers and wading through bog a little bit, especially the last bit was very boggy. So yeah, it's a long walk, especially now in the winter, you know, that almost fills mm. your entire day of daylight. I was going to say that, that's a day of daylight, it's a full day out. And just touching upon what you said as well, like, when you are scrambling, for so when you're doing curved bridge, for example, you, your concentration sort of mm. on that route and keeping yourself safe and where you're placing your feet and your hands. But when you're doing a walk like that, you can really take in the landscape and enjoy it and stop with your camera and sit and have a wee chat with yourself and stop and have a coffee. So, yeah, I think it's a great walk. I actually want to do it again. I'm gutted. I'm gutted I missed it. We'll have to go out again because, yeah, it was a fantastic route and I absolutely completely agree that being on a route that is, you know, doesn't require much technical skill just gives you that 
appreciation for paying attention to your surroundings and walking with your eyes up rather than the eyes down on your feet and making sure you don't fall off or <laughs> stumble yeah. or something absolutely and i think what i should have said as well like you don't ha you shouldn't you don't have to like be able to scramble or trad climb to appreciate the buckle mm. it's as grand from below and if you're not interested in climbing definitely do that walk if you're into walking and you can still appreciate and get as much from these landscapes absolutely one of the things that I reflected on on my walk and I think or I hope that kind of also reflects with some of the other work that you do um, that we'll, we'll get to talk about now is you know the way these landscapes are changing not just in a historic way you know I was thinking of how many trees there might have been one day or whether there had been any crofts or townships in those glens which I don't know but just thinking of that loss of culture and loss of of the way the landscape looked but also looking into the present and the, the future, really, of how these landscapes are changing. Can you talk a little bit about your work with Protect Our Winters and where that interest in climate activism really connects with your interest in the outdoors? Yeah, so, so for those that don't know, Protect Our Winters is a climate action charity and its mission is to essentially we try and turn people's passion into action and harness the connection that people have to the outdoors as a force for positive good and for positive change positive good that was a double positive <laughs> <laughs> and yeah we essentially try to help uh, passionate outdoors people become climate advocates with the intention of influencing and bringing about systemic change and really for me the reason I, I gravitated towards POW was like when I started exploring the outdoors, it was benefiting me hugely. And I think, in the same way that the climate crisis, for example, was, you know, that's robbing future, future generations of these experiences, potentially, at least as they are, are today. And I feel like for me, it would be hugely selfish of me to reap from this landscape and these experiences and not seek to preserve that for future generations, but even more close home, like my nephews, for example. And I think one of the things is that in the UK, we're, we're relatively sheltered to an extent from the more extreme impacts of climate change. We're not necessarily, at least well, in Scotland, I know we're having it in England, we're not seeing, say, the, the flooding that was happening in Pakistan recently. We can be somewhat sheltered to an extent, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And Protect Our Winters was put on my radar from people that I looked up to. So I followed people like Jimmy Chin and uh, Conrad Anker. And, you know, they were talking about Protect Our Winters because it's a charity that operates in the US as well. And for me, it just presented an opportunity to give back and try and preserve these places um, that have had that sort of positive impact on my life. And as well as that, it's identifying the fact that you are in a hugely priv privileged position to be benefiting from this landscape. So I think there's a sort of onus on us mm. to, to do what we can to protect these places. And I think, you know, there's that somewhat construed view and it, it can be viewed negatively it's like mountaineers trying to protect the glaciers because we want to go climbing every season but those mountain glaciers don't just mean that I can't climb in that's not my main focus 
that melting glacier means that there's in 20 years from now for example there might not be drinking water for the communities below that glacier so yes maybe the receding glaciers are what drew our attention to it initially the reasons for wanting to protect it and conserve it goes way way beyond that so yeah it's such a I mean, climate action is such an overwhelming, all of it, climate change, climate action, the science behind it is such, so overwhelming. And I, I just didn't know where to begin. But what drew me towards Protect Our Winters was that it had that sort of very grounded feel. It was very much about speaking to outdoors people in a language that you understood and, and sort of giving you simple actions that you could take. And yeah, and it was really... Our main focus at the moment, for example, is it's really about bringing together. So the outdoors community in the UK, for example, I think the estimates for how many people are getting out for leisure um, in the outdoors is around, I think it's like 20 to 23 million thereabouts. Mm -hmm. If 20 million people come together and do one small thing, that can be hugely influential. And that's what we're, we're trying to do at the moment in the UK is bring the outdoors industry, bring the outdoors communities together. So, for example, if the 2024 elections happen in 2024, if the next general election, that a huge amount or a large proportion of that outdoor population can turn up and vote, for example, with climate in mind, and we can demand that ambitious climate policy that then influences and creates the systemic change that we need or that scientists around the world agree that we need to get us out of out of the climate crisis and so for me yeah I've been there about one year now but I just feel so fortunate to be in a role and work with an organization that you know my interests and my values mm. and my skill set you know because I studied business and marketing at university have, have all aligned so it's pretty fulfilling um, and I, yeah it's nice to be able to feel like I'm at least trying mm. to do something. And I think it's so right what you said. It is so overwhelming and it can feel so difficult to see what you can do as just one person or as a small community or, you know, I'm I'm not allowed to vote in the UK. So for me, it's it's sometimes it feels even more overwhelming because I feel like I can't, I can't do even just the smallest thing of voting for a, a party that will make climate policies that, that will improve the future rather than... Uh, making it worse but what you say is is you need to find a way in and find something that you personally can relate to and where it becomes important to your personal life and then from that take action even if it's only so to say uh, in relation to one thing it will have impacts in many different ways like you say with you know protecting one glacier is not just protecting the adventure playground but it is actually doing so much more for animals and for communities that live in that area I took note of some stats I had a look particularly thinking about the impact of climate change in Scotland mm -hmm. and I think we're probably people are very aware of the impact on coastal environments. Mm. You know, we hear about the sea levels rising and, and things like that. So over the last 30 years, every decade, sea level has risen by three centimetres. But I think what people think maybe a bit less about is how it affects the mountains. Mm -hmm. And particularly in Scotland, thinking about the highlands, but also thinking about the Cairngorms, they are the only landscape like this in the UK we have 5% wetter winters in the last 30 years and about a half degree warmer average temperature yeah. as well in the last 30 years and 
how do you see that affecting <coughs> the mountains in specifically in, in Scotland, whether you are in the Western Highlands or in the Cairngorms? Yeah, and that, like, the, the 5%, the wetter winters is a big one in the climate change. And, like, just because it maybe doesn't necessarily seem as extreme as some of the things that we're seeing elsewhere in the world, you know, you, you are going to see similar things. So, for example, well, you live in Scotland, you know how wet it already is. That getting wetter and warmer, like the wind, uh, the winters are getting wetter and warmer, and we already have such a fickle season. So, from a selfish perspective, for example, climbing becomes more dangerous because there's more rockfall, more th- uh, freeze thaw cycles. Certain sports just don't become viable. Snowboarders and skiers, for example, and ice climbers in Scotland are always chasing that that season, mm. but there will come a point where it's just not going to be feasible anymore but at the same time that's more i guess sort of selfish impact but wildlife is impacted communities are impacted because like if we talk about cairngorm cairngorm mountain there's a community that thrive on that mountain and the snow sports and the things that happen there so that community is impacted as well and one one big thing that i've become aware of and one thing i've seen it's the changing seasons so winter doesn't always feel like winter. Mm. Uh, so we've been getting the best sort of winter winter climbing conditions at the March into April. Um, and they're wildly un- unpredictable. But you're seeing that changing of the seasons and that impacts uh, everything, like the ticks and midges and other two mm. things, which um, probably two of the things I like the least about <laughs> summer in Scotland. <laughs> Other than I, I agree, <laughs> but the you're seeing that midges and ticks they're having longer seasons uh, because of the warmer wetter conditions. Midges mm. love that, for example. But these things impact the ecosystem in like, countless ways. So there are all these nuanced impacts, but as well as that, similarly, you know, to the things we see around the world, you will get more extreme weather conditions. So there will be flooding. Fortunately, we've got a lot of water in Scotland um, so we don't see the droughts in the same way but you know we're part of the UK so the reliance on Scottish mm-hmm. water will therefore become higher so t- to be honest any impacts that you see elsewhere in the world we're not we're not sheltered from them absolutely I think there's you know again I, I kind of just had a look at some of the organizations and and kind of bodies like nature scott and and what they say about climate change and and how it impacts the country and it goes from what you were mentioning loss of habitat habitat of certain animals being pushed further north or being higher pushed higher up until they'll eventually run out of space erosion flooding the loss of peat bogs i think is a really Mm. unique maybe not unique but very special thing particularly for scotland because we all we don't we all love a peat bog on a hike, but but if they all disappear, that wouldn't be great either, <laughs> you know. The quality of soil, productivity of farms, the entire marine ecosystem, really, which has to do with climate and you know food systems and and fishing and and things like that. It's scary to think how all these things impact our world and and our our immediate surroundings on so many different levels and that overwhelm I can, I can feel it <laughs> yeah not not totally it's it's scary um and if you look at the the alps for example what's been happening there so 
I am not a geologist by any means, but so I might butcher this somewhat, but people can do their own research. But so from what I've heard, the mountains in Scotland are a lot older, so they've already exceeded the mm-hmm. amount of erosion that the Alps haven't yet. So the Alpine mountains are much higher. And for a lot of them, what's holding them together is permafrost. Mm-hmm. But with the warming temperatures, that permafrost is melting and the rocks are crumbling. And the roots, there's a lot of classic roots like this summer uh, that essentially just, just fell apart. And that's terrifying. You're seeing you're seeing the environment change in real time. Mm. Like when you think about the mountains, you think of these ancient landscapes that have taken thousands, millions of years to form. But if you go to certain places in the Alps, you can literally see them changing before your eyes. And that is terrifying. And for, for outdoors people, the one thing it means is that, you know, the sports. So if you're a climber, for example, it's more it's more dangerous. But again, that's a direct impact. But that change in landscape, if people can't climb in the Alps anymore, those communities below don't have a don't mm-hmm. have a livelihood. The wildlife is impacted so it is pretty scary to see, if I'm honest. And in the end, it was just becoming aware of those changes again that sort of was a catalyst for me to be like, okay, mm. what can you do about this? So what can we do about it? If if you had a couple of tips for, for listeners and for people who really care about the outdoors and feel that overwhelm, what are some of the small things you suggest people do to feel like they are contributing to it? you know, if if not improving in the short term, at least halting some of the, the deprivation. I think one thing I'll address first of all is the idea of imperfect advocacy. I don't know if you've um, read much about that before, but it's something that Protect Our Winters is really passionate about. And it's this sort of, you know, I think in a lot of avenues and aspects of life, we sort of seek and demand perfection from people knowing that we don't embody that ourselves and I think you do see that a lot in activism and advocacy so the idea for example that people think because they drive a petrol um, fueled car that they can talk about climate or they can't take other forms of action because they're hypocritical but ultimately if you're driving a petrol car you're using a system and, and an infrastructure that you don't really You've, you've not put it there, you're using something that's essentially is is managed by our, our, our government. And the same with like if you're a meat eater, for example, just because you have the occasional cheeseburger doesn't mean that you couldn't campaign for a systemic policy change because nobody is perfect. And the idea that we are is it's ludicrous or the idea that, we, that you need to be. But what I do think it's important is that you know, you find balance in your own life and find a balance with these things that, you know, that rests well on your conscience and that aligns with your values and maybe taking those individual actions will then empower you to take these other actions. But ultimately it goes back to something that we can all do is speak up. You can use your platforms, unfortunately, for you in your situation, you can't use your, your vote. I can use it in Scotland. You can use it in Scotland? Ah, yeah. sweet. Perfect. So... That is huge. And like I said, when I was talking about, you know, the size of the outdoors community, we're we're hugely different. We're vibrant people from all different backgrounds. But if we can find that sort of common ground and come together, say, to take a small action, you know, it can have a huge impact. So using, again, the, the voting, for example, if 10 million people turned up 
to the ballot box and we're demanding that ambitious climate policy, politicians are ultimately going to follow that because they, they, they need the votes at the end of the day. But as well as that, for people that can't vote, you can still influence other policymakers. You know, whether that's in business, you know, you can speak with your wallet. Don't don't mm. support businesses that don't share your values. And again, maybe as an individual that doesn't have a huge impact, but if a huge uh, amount of people, if 20 million people in the outdoors community are coming together to do so, you know, it has a big impact. And I think similarly, if we look back when I was talking about like my journey and how do you go from that first mishap on the buckle to like being able to like call yourself a mountaineer or whatever. It's just those baby steps. Mm. Do the small things. In in a year, in ten years, all those little things add up and can result in drastic changes. So I think the three things I would say is so educate yourself, you know, read books about the subject, read news articles, listen to podcasts, and then speak out. So, and speak up, have conversations with your friends, have conversations with people at work, speak to policymakers, and then, yeah, take action. And there's lots of different ways you can take action. One is to vote with climate in mind. Others, you know, there's, you'll see, so for example, why the words left my head? (laughs) (laughs) Petitions, I couldn't think. Is that what it means? Yeah. Yeah, so I think so. Educating yourself is important because it sort of it empowers you to it and gives you the confidence, I guess, to take other actions. And there's lots of different actions that you can take. And a good way to find out about these is to follow charities and organisations like Protect Our Winters, but other organisations as well, like Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, sign up for their newsletter, and they'll send you actions straight to your inbox, and you can. Yeah, rather than hunting for things to do, you can. It's, it's sort of simplified, and it doesn't have to be. I think, especially with what we've been seeing in the news, with with a lot of the, you know, the stop oil direct action, for example. If you're not comfortable with that sort of thing, that's not what you have to do to take, you know, to make change happen and to speak out and stand up for climate. So it can be as simple as signing a petition speaking with your MP, engaging with your MP, or even, say, in your own work, for example, working with senior management and chatting with senior management, how can how can your business be more sustainable? And all these things, yeah, they all add up. I mean, a lot of us are doing these small things that can be hugely impactful. Absolutely. We'll pop some of those links in the show notes and a bit more information about Protect Our Winters on the full show notes on the website as well. Adam, how can people... Get in touch with you, stay in touch with you, see what you're up to and find out more about your work. Uh, me personally, you can give me a follow on Instagram. What's my Instagram? It's Adam Raja on Instagram. Uh, yeah, say hi if you're ever in the Highlands. You want to go a, a walk or a scramble. I can't say I'm the, <laughs> I can't say I'm the safest person to go, <laughs> go out with, but if you want a misadventure, definitely get in touch. I'm going to be at Kendall this year actually as well will Kendall have been actually by the time this Kendall will have been at the time uh, this has aired and your film will have screened there is that right? Yeah which is terrifying um, and exciting and a bizarre experience but I've been working with Cold House which is mad because like do you know Cold House at all? No I don't So they're like a film studio creative studio 
don't know what you would class them as, but they make some really awesome winter films, and I've fanboyed o- over them for years. So um, somehow I've ended up in a cold house film, which Berghouse will be premiering at Kendall, but it'll be up on the Berghouse YouTube, I think, and on their Instagram and stuff, probably by the time this podcast goes out. So do check it out. Hopefully it's good. Be kind to me if it's not. <laughs> I can't wait to have a look at that, actually. Um, congrats for, you know, having that happening. I, I know how exciting it is when you, you know, you've dreamed about working with a certain company or a certain organisation for a while and then it happens. That's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's a bit surreal, to be honest. And it's funny talking about it just now because it's not happened. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, I've filmed that. I've seen the edit, but it's still in the final, still in the editing room getting things like So it's bizarre, but it's a cool opportunity. Um, and we touched upon some of the stuff in this interview, but it's been a real opportunity to sort of stop, take notes and look back at my life and take a lot of the negative things from my past and do something positive with it. And as well as that, just being able to look back and see how far I've come, which is, is, it's been really nice and actually therapeutic overall so yeah i hope people like it and i'll definitely i'll get you a link that you can check it out as well amazing and we'll pop that in the show notes as well thank you so much for taking the time for chatting with me and sharing your story and so much of your insights and your experiences with all of us do you have any final words no thank thank you um, i never know like i'm so i always say one of my biggest fears is public speaking and I know this isn't necessarily public but podcasts got audiences so I'm always super nervous but that was super chilling and a nice conversation it's been nice to meet you and chat with you I'm glad thank you very much um, it's likewise <laughs> right cool. Thank you so much to Adam Raja for taking the time to share his story with us and also for introducing me to a new favourite hike and helping me to fall in love with Glencoe all over again. If you'd like to connect with Adam and keep up to date with his misadventures in the Highlands, his Instagram account is it's Adam Raja, I-T-S-A-D-A-M-R-A-J-A. Our conversation left me super inspired to get more engaged with climate activism and figure out ways in which I can stop feeling so overwhelmed and instead start to take action. I've already signed up for the Protect Our Winters newsletter, and you can do the same via the link in the show notes. And with this, I send you off to dream about your own hike in the Scottish Highlands. Next week, we'll share our final story of this season. It's a little bit different than our usual format, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. If you enjoyed today's conversation, do me a favour and share it with a friend who might enjoy it. Post about it on social media or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. These are all great ways for you to support our work at absolutely no cost to you. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Gamleitner. Thanks to Fran Turowski's who is the co-producer and editor, and does the sound design. Kirsty Spain helps with transcripts and social media. Podcast art is by Lizzie Bond Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different place in Scotland.
If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.